ask if you take your Bible, and we're going to continue on in the series over the next few moments uh, that we started a few weeks ago on Revelation. And today we're, we're moving into Revelation chapter 3 in this seventh week. And this is the fifth in this series of letters that were written to seven different churches that the Apostle Paul was told by Jesus in this vision, write down what I'm going to tell you to these seven churches. The title of the message today is Sardis, the Zombie Church. Sardis, the Zombie Church. Now, I just need you to know that when I was putting these outlines together, I had no idea that it would happen to fall on the weekend of October 31st, Halloween, that, that this particular message would be preached. That's just merely coincidence. But up to this point, we have heard about the letters from Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira, and now we move into Sardis. Father, as we, as we dive into your word today... We recognize that it's only through your help and the Holy Spirit that we can begin to understand it and apply it in our lives. And so, Lord, whether there be people here today that may be children or teenagers, college students, young adults, adults and seniors, whatever it is, we recognize that there are aspects of your word that you want to speak to each of our lives at whatever stage of life we were at. And so we ask you to have that freedom to reveal these things to us during the word today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we have mentioned each week, there is an aspect of the history of the city that the Lord addresses in the letter that he gives to it. And so as we look at Sardis, uh, Sardis was, was a fairly wealthy city. In fact, it was literally built on the top of a hill that sticks out where three sides of it were massive cliffs. It was a beautiful city that had an overlooking view uh, from where it was. In fact, the cliffs were so high it would take five football fields, almost straight vertical, to get to this city on three sides. The only way that you could get to it would be coming from the south side where there was a gradual rise and a road that went there. As a result of that, the builders and the kings of the city at the time felt as if there was only one way that they could ever be attacked, and so the city had taken on an attitude that was kind of like smugly secure. They just felt like we've got it all together. We are in a defendable place and do not feel as if we can be attacked. In the 6th century before Christ, in the ancient world, the king that was living in this city and ruling this particular land was known as Croesus, and he was probably the wealthiest man in the world of his particular time. And he had attacked the Persians, and Cyrus didn't like it, so Cyrus came and besieged the city, and Croesus felt so overwhelmed in his confidence that all they had to do was defend the south side that he wouldn't even close the gates that were on the cliff side of the city. One particular evening, there was an individual from Cyrus's army who risked his life and scaled 1,500 foot of cliff. And in the middle of the night when he got to the top of the cliff, he recognized that on the side that he had climbed, not only did they not lock the gate, it was wide open. He literally walked into the town and in the middle of the night walked all the way through the city, removed the big bar on the inside of the main gate from the inside, opened the doors, gave the signal, and the army rushed up and took the city. And so Croesus awoke the next morning to find out that he was no longer the king, that by stealth at night a thief had come and stolen everything that he had tried to hide. And all it would have taken was to have somebody standing near that gate, listening to somebody climb and throw one rock down, and you could have picked anybody trying to climb those cliffs off. But they were so secure that it would never happen that they completely ignored it. In fact, 
This characterizes the city of Sardis. In the letter that the Spirit writes to them, they are a complacent city. And interesting enough, it would be 600 years later that 15 other men would climb those same cliffs and repeat the same process and take the city again. And so out of all of the cities and all of the letters that are being written in this, this city probably lived in the history of its past more than at any other. It thought it had a future, but it did not. Its glory had belonged to a bygone age. And so the Lord comes to this church in the city of Sardis, and he has much to say to it because the church had begun to assume the attitude of the city. And so let's take a look at Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is what the passage says. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. In each of these letters... It begins with a description of Jesus that likens back to chapter 1 and this vision that Peter uh, or that John had had of Jesus. And it starts out in the first verse saying, I am he who has the seven spirits of God. Now we, from the first chapter, you'll remember that these reflect back to Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2 when it talks about the Holy Spirit in seven different components. And he's the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, of power, of knowledge and fear. And so these seven descriptions of the ministry of the Holy Spirit contained within the being of the Spirit are given. And Jesus is saying, I am the one who possesses the Spirit. Now that is a significant statement because it was being spoken to a church that it was at the point of death. The Spirit alone, he was saying to them, is what brings life. And if you do not have the Spirit involved in your life, then you do not have life. I contain the life-giving spirit. Therefore, the Lord is wanting this church to keep in mind that the bringer of life has been excluded from their presence. And until you allow me back in, you will not have life. I can think of no more pointed uh, view than a church that is on the verge of spiritual death. A church that is in a backslidden condition. That the Spirit of the Lord would say to them, My hope is that you would allow yourselves to be touched by the living power of the Holy Spirit one more time. That life would be imparted and imputed back to you as you open your heart and life to the Spirit. So Jesus is saying it's the Spirit who gives life. It's the Spirit that breathes life into man and that breathes life into the church. It was Jesus at his resurrection breathed upon the disciples in John 20, 22 and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, receive life into you. And so the Lord looks at this church that was at the point of death and he says, I am the one who holds the Spirit of life. 
Not only does he hold the spirit, but he also holds the ability to bring that which is dead back to life again. In Revelation 3, 1, he says, he holds the stars in his hand. And, and I, I think if there was a peril at Sardis, it might be this. That Sardis was thinking of itself in grandiose terms. It was, it was a wealthy community. It was beautiful. It had a great view. And it felt like it was easily defended in it. And all of this, the Lord is saying, but you have been living your life and the church has been living its life outside of the life-giving spirit. And so everything that you do, all of your meaning and all of your importance and all of your activities is for people to see you, but there's no life in it. He said, the church is the Lord's. And the Lord is trying to get through to this church saying, look, remember whose you are because I hold you and what I'm holding in my hand is lifeless at this particular time. And he moves from there into this diagnosis of the believers. So the Lord represents his character to the church. And if you'll notice that there has been a series of letters and they always start with after the Lord describes himself to the church, he then compliments them on something that was valuable that he sees, but not Sardis. There's no word of approval for Sardis. There's nothing that he sees of value. And so he starts right into the condemnation. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Jesus brings to their attention and to ours that there is a difference between reputation and reality. We clearly can live in a place where the way we are viewed from the outside brings to people's attention that something may be there that is not found on the inside. And Jesus, in, in these terrifying words, says to them, you think you're alive. You have a reputation in your community. But from my viewpoint, there is nothing that is alive in you. Sardis saw itself as a strong church. Perhaps it was a growing church. Perhaps they had great attendance. Perhaps they were strong financially. Perhaps it was excellent at doing things for other people. But Jesus said, from my view, I look at you and there's nothing of value and nothing of life that is found in you. You are dead and you've been measuring yourself by the wrong measuring stick. We need to understand that there's nothing better organized than a graveyard but there's no life there. So Jesus is speaking to this church and he says, you are operating without the power of the spirit. And so here's what he says. You're all image and no substance. How easy is that for us personally? I was arrested by that thought this week in study. How many times do we feel as if I can just present to everybody's view out there that I've got it all together? As long as they look at me and think, boy, I think highly of that individual because of this or the way they look or the way they speak. But, but we know that on the inside something's missing. So we, we are satisfied with having a reputation of looking good, looking like we've got it together. When, when we stare at the mirror, we recognize there's hollowness and emptiness on the inside. And we get so caught up in projecting an image to everyone around us about how cool we are and how we have it all together. But inside, the Lord says, what I see looks like a tomb. So Jesus says to Sardis, you're all celebrity and no conviction. 
You have settled for fans and not spiritual fruit. You're all show and no substance. You're all hype, but no Holy Spirit. You're all performance and no prayer. You are form and production and getting it right with great music, but there's no life there because lives never get changed when people are around you. He said, there's a form of worship, but no power. There's ritual and ceremony, but no power. There's activity and labor, but no power. There's preaching and teaching, but no power. Is that not why the church has a bad reputation in the world? Because people can walk away from there and say, that was boring. Because there's no power. The Lord addresses them. And with this tragic assessment of the church, with everything going on, you have missed, he said, the fact my presence slipped out of the building and you never even knew it. I'm just not there anymore. Now, this may be a gross analogy, but I'm a farm kid. We used to butcher our own chickens. And for any of you that know anything about that, you can cut the head off a chicken and let it go, and it will run and flap, and there's all kind of activity. You may look at that thing, and it looks alive, but there is no life to it. It is all activity, and it will come to a sudden end. It's interesting that Sardis has entered into this place one generation after the original people came to Jesus Christ. Within one generation, they lost life. Hollywood has given us a name for people like this. They're called zombies, corpses that are alive. They walk about as though they're living, but they're really dead. And when we read this letter, we are looking at the first zombie church of Sardis. They were so devoid of life that they actually had no struggles whatsoever going on on the inside. You'll notice the difference between it and the other churches because the other churches were were told to hang fast because you were under persecution from Jewish accusers. Even though there was a large colony of Jews in Sardis, they weren't being attacked. In fact, they ignored the church. Maybe some of them didn't even know the church existed. They were not warned of false prophets. There was no domineering Nicolaitans who needed to be guarded against. There was no false prophets. There was nothing, zip, going on that this church was in trouble for. Nothing. Nothing. That was the ministry at the church of Sardis, zombie existence. And Jesus said, you're dead because I'm not there anymore. You've lost your first love. You've lost your hunger for me. You've lost that primitive dependence that I am all that matters in life, and you're just all about the show. And so we get to verse 2, and he tells them, wake up. In fact, if, if I were to yell the words, wake up as loudly as I should to, to grasp this, I would scare our sound people. But what this word is really like is it's, it's presented in such a way that the Lord says, it's like a slap in the face to them. Hey, wake up. Have any of you ever been a passenger in a car where the driver was beginning to wave off the road? You know, that's what those rumble strips are for. You hit the rumble strips, and if you're going beyond those, at some point, the passenger who's awake needs to yell, hey, wake up over there. I mean, there is this this sense of impending disaster if you don't wake up right now. And that is the way that the Spirit presents this statement to the church. And he says, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in my sight. As Jesus was diagnosing this church, it was busy doing things, but it was doing them to impress people, 
It was doing them for display, to enhance a reputation, and they were concerned in everything they did, would the right people see it, and would the right people pat me on the back? And Jesus is saying to the church, you have a way of beginning things, but you never finish anything. You start with great intentions, but you just fall apart. And in the middle of that, there's this word to us. We understand that when we stand before God, He not only judges what we do, He judges our motives. That, that's kind of a sobering thought. Because there have been a lot of things that I've accomplished in life and things that I have done that when I stand before God, I might find out that the reason I did them had nothing to do with glorifying the Lord, but I just wanted you to like me. And so when my motive is revealed, I don't know whether there will be a reward or not because the Lord sees the motive of the heart and he looks at Sardis and he said, everything you did was not for me. It wasn't as unto the Lord. It was so that people could pat you on the back. And I realize I'm saying this on Pastor Appreciation Sunday. So ironic. But he understood that it's the heart that derives the activity and the heart of love that, that they had had. He says, that heart is gone from you and you're doing all of these things and none of them matters because you've lost life. And he tells them, strengthen them. Get your motives right. And he continues on with this correction when he says, remember therefore what you have received and heard and obey it and repent. Now, if any of you like me are reading out of the New International Version, this is one of the verses that I, that I contend has not been uh, interpreted correctly. There's a word that makes a difference here. The way the NIV has it is, remember therefore what you have received. But in Greek, if you were to take the actual explanation of that, it would not be a what, but it would be a how. In other words, Remember, therefore, how you have received. That makes sense in the context here because the Lord is saying what you have received from me in the past came to you in the life of the Spirit. So remember what it was like when you had the life of the Spirit. It was delivered in the Spirit, the message of Jesus and His crucifixion on behalf of sinners and His resurrection and His Holy Spirit given to human beings to strengthen them and to impart to them righteous life and position. They had heard it all, but He said, it came to you through the power of the Holy Spirit, and you need to go back to that. And He tells them to remember. In Greek, this word remember is one for us that says keep remembering. Don't you ever forget it's the Spirit that gives you life. Don't you ever forget that you are not capable of producing a spiritual life with your own good words or your own deeds. You are incapable of it. Don't ever forget this, he says, remember. And then he said repent. In other words, there should be an active part of our day, an active part of our prayer when we are coming before the Lord saying, Lord, you know my life and you know the temptations I face. Would you just forgive me? I want to repent because I want to qualify for the life of the Spirit in my life. I do not want to be a zombie Christian. And he moves from there and begins to speak to him about the dangers that they are to consider. He said, if you do not wake up, if my yelling at you and slapping you in the face and saying, wake up, if it doesn't work, then I'm going to come to you like a thief. And you will not know at what time I will come to you. Now, this meant something to Sardis. Because they'd been conquered twice in the middle of the night by people that climbed cliffs that were completely unguarded. And they woke up the next morning and a thief had come in and taken the kingdom. 
And so when he tells them this, he is speaking a language that they understand historically, and now they understand it spiritually. The next thing they needed to do to recover, he says, you need to remember that if you don't wake up, I'm coming like a thief. I believe one of the important things for us as a church is to constantly live with the understanding Jesus is coming again. We get so busy and so difficult with the times that we live in, and sometimes we forget this is a limited time offer. The rapture of the church is going to happen. Jesus is going to return, and we will be lifted from here. And this church had lost all of its focus, completely let it go that they were going to see Jesus again. And when you don't live with the expectation of his soon return, we can get lax in the way we live. And so he reminds us in Matthew 24, verses 42 through 44. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. And from that warning, he then gradually eases into verses 4 through 6 where he says, Yet, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. That, that was symbolic statement of they have not lowered their guard. They've not lived in sin. They were living holy and righteous and pursuing his heart. And he said, they will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. Now, when we think of people that are dressing in white, we generally think about three things. Number one, a wedding, a celebration, a festival of some sort. When the bride comes down the aisle, she's dressed in white. It's symbolic, and it, it means something. We all stand in honor of that, and, and so we recognize that's an appropriate time. At the time in which this letter was written, anybody who had won contests were allowed to dress in white because it was a victor's color. And then we also know that it's a representative of a sign of purity because Jesus said, I'm going to give you a robe of righteousness, a white that signifies that you are living righteously, not because of you, but because of him. He gives you this robe. And so he is saying all these things about the people that will walk with him in this little town of Sardis that have not let themselves be sucked into a lifeless existence. And he says, when you're with me forever, it's going to be a festival. You're going to be victorious, and I'm going to show everybody that I have made you pure. And to him who conquers, I will give this white garment, a robe of righteousness which will never be soiled again. And moving from that, we come to this statement. In verse 5, I will never blot out his name from the book of life. The phrase, the book of life, is kind of fascinating in the history of Scripture. And you may want to just jot down some of these verses because it's first mentioned in Scripture in Exodus 32, 32, when Moses cries, please forgive their sin, but if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. In other words, Moses was willing to place himself in an eternal realm away from God on behalf of the people that he was being asked to lead and for their salvation. It's used again in Psalm 69, 28, when the psalmist cries out, God blot out the names of the wicked from the book that he has written. 
In Luke chapter 10, when the disciples came back from their first mission of, of having ministered under the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit, and they were coming back and jumping up and high-fiving and rejoicing because for the first time they had been able to cast out demons and they'd seen the power and the miraculous power of God at work through them. And they came back to tell Jesus all of this and he looks at them and he tells them, Do not rejoice that the spirits are submitted unto you, but rejoice that your names are written down in heaven. And Paul in Philippians 4.3 talks about his fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. In Hebrews 12.23, we're told that the believers have their names enrolled in heaven. That we, from the moment that we have received Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are citizens of another kingdom. Oh, hallelujah. And we have an enrollment there and all of the benefits that come from that. And then in Revelation chapter 13, which we'll get to, and Revelation 17, which we'll get to, it says that our names have been written before the foundation of the world. Now, what's interesting about this is that in Sardis, this particular city, it had a book that had a registration of all of its citizens. It's been one of the records that they have found. And when a citizen died... The name was blotted out of the registry because they no longer existed. However, in their penal system, if there had been a crime committed, the citizen, if the offense was bad enough, would also have their name blotted out of the registry of good citizens within this city. And so when the Lord is speaking to them and telling them, I want you to know there's another book more important than your citizenship book in Sardis, and it's the book of heaven, and if you don't straighten up, I'm going to blot your name out. It meant something to them. And it is an interesting threat from the Lord that can become a theological debate. Begin to ask questions. Well, how secure am I in my salvation? I personally believe that believers are kept very sure that when you have entered into the relationship with the Lord and you pursue him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and as you're doing that, that you are secure. The enemy can't pluck you out. However, I also believe that the scripture is not intended to make a backslider feel very safe. If you're living in a condition where you thought, I'm going to live like I want because I said the prayer once and because I know that once saved, I'm always saved, nothing can happen. This is going to make you feel very uncomfortable. Because the scriptures constantly give warning to those who are backslidden or those who do not know him and those who believe that it doesn't matter what I do or how I live or the lifestyle I participate in, I am secure in Christ. And Jesus is saying, let me revisit that with you. Because he clearly, clearly outlines to them a threat. He said, these are Jesus' words, I will take your name out of the book of life. It is a severe warning from turning from the Lord. And I think that we dilute its message if we theologize it away and if we argue it away and think that it doesn't exist. Clearly, this church is being told your security is in jeopardy because you think you're alive, but you're not. The challenge is to have your name in the book of life. Of all of the registrations, of all of the registrations that mankind can ever come with, there's nothing more important when you stand before God than when the book of life is open, having your name there. And that only happens when you make the decision to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and to live for Him 
Not just a savior, but allowing him lordship over your life. Pursuing a life that honors him. Pursuing holiness. And then the Lord wraps this up in worship team, if you please come. By saying, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. My prayer for you during all of this series has been this, that there would be something of the life of the Spirit that would begin to knock on the door of our hearts. That we would not just read the words and not just encapsulate it in the historical context, but that there would be something of the life of the Spirit that would knock on the door of our hearts and say, listen, I need you to hear what I am saying to you. I need you to hear not only what I'm saying to the church, but I need you to hear what I'm saying to you. Because some of you today have entered into that place where you can go through the motions, you can sing the songs, you know when to raise your hand, you know how to high-five people in the Spirit, but there's no life in you. You become satisfied with reputation. And Jesus looks at you and says, you think you're alive, but you're dead. The Spirit is not in you any longer. Your motives are wrong. Everything you do is for show. You want to be slapped on the back and I'm here to tell you. Wake up. Wake up while there's time. Or I will blot your name out of the book. I will let your natural spiritual death take its natural course. You're going, that's, that's kind of harsh preaching. I'm just preaching the word. I'm preaching the word. My greatest fear is that somehow when I stand before God, I will have given congregations under my care a false sense of security. That everything is okay regardless of what you do. Only to have to be a witness when those that have heard those words are not allowed in because their names are not there. So he's saying that's, that's very strict interpretation. I believe when Jesus says to a church, you're dead and you don't even know it. In the application of that to a believer's life, that that is something that should shock us to the reality. The Spirit gives life. And if you have grown comfortable living a life that is outside of the parameters of what God calls holy, you should not be comfortable. And it should draw you running back to the throne.